All right. Good morning, everybody. Can you hear me okay? I think I'm a little more forward than I'm supposed to be, so hopefully there's no feedback or anything like that. Well, good morning, Redstone Church. Can you say good morning back? All right, good. Makes me feel a little bit better. I teach high school, so the difference between high school and you guys is that you guys pay attention, so at least I I hope that's the case. Um, So anyway, I I hope you guys are are happy to be here, excited to be here. I know I'm excited to be in this space with you um, to hear God's Word and have it really intersect our hearts and hopefully make a difference in our lives and that sort of thing. Um, And if you're a guest, we're really, really excited for you to be here. So what we're going to do is talk today a little bit about rest, but starting um, first, I want to talk about busyness. So I don't know about you guys, but my life is pretty busy. Um, And so just to kind of illustrate and give you some some idea and different things. So I'm a husband and a father, and if you didn't know, Rachel's pregnant, so we got another one on the way. So that's good news. Thank you. Thank you. So we're excited about that. So that adds a certain little bit of busyness as well, obviously, for all of you that have lots of kids. Um, I also work full-time to support my family. I drive an hour each way to and from work, so that's 10 hours a week and about 40 hours a month of driving. So that definitely makes your life a little bit extra busy. Um, and then as Spencer mentioned, I've had the privilege of being able to, to lead this new community group in Elizabethan, and so that has been really, really rewarding to me because it's, you know, it's an awesome group of people, and we just continue to see God's faithfulness time and time again. And so I have you know, a journal full of different things that God has done uh, just to show his hand and his work in that group and in, in Elizabethan as well. And so all of these things, they lend themselves to being you know, busy externally. You know, all that stuff, um, seminaries, uh, Jeremiah and I are both very excited to graduate from seminary this May. Um, so all these things make life really, really busy. But then there's also the internal things that make your life busy, too. Um, so for me, that's thinking and worrying and, and wondering um, what I'm going to do for work in the fall. Um, that's things like, am I being a good Christian in terms of growing uh, more mature in my faith, um, practicing spiritual disciplines? Am I leading my wife and my um, children well spiritually? And what will that look like as my children get older? Um, sort of thing, and it's just continuing to all these different things, right? I've got friends, family, coworkers, students, all these people I sp- feel spiritually responsible for that need to hear the gospel. And so all of these external things, all of these internal things, they make life busy. And I would imagine you guys can probably relate that to that as well. And so that's what we want to talk about today. So the problem with our culture, the problem with us, is that we are so busy and our pace of life so frantic that we don't easily trust in the promises of God. We get really, really busy, and it becomes hard to trust in God. The more that we do, the more busy that we get, the more that we try to do on our own, the more that our lives are reflective of people that are chasing after all kinds of things in the world, but not chasing after God. And so that's a problem. See, we live in a culture in which we are constantly connected via cell phone, internet, social media, email. We are connected 24-7, and so we never stop working and we never stop doing. We wake up and we hit the ground running. We go through, rush through our morning routine. We, we make sure that we make our coffee. If we're really lucky, we might get to spend a few minutes praying or reading through the Bible, only if we're lucky. If we have kids, then we have to hurry up and wake them up, rush them to get ready, rush them out the door to daycare, preschool or school or whatever the case might be. We rush to work, or in my case, I have an hour to work, and so you fill your time with phone calls or the radio or podcasts or talk shows or whatever the case might be on your way to work. You get to work and you spend your whole day doing whatever it is that you have to do there, going to meetings or meeting deadlines or whatever the case is. You leave work and you drive home probably in the same manner that you you went to work, filling it up with lots of different things. If you have kids, you pick them up from wherever you drop them off. You might take them to some sort of sports practice or or instrument practice, whatever the case might be. You go home and you frantically throw something together for dinner. 
Um, you get the kids ready for bed or do homework or whatever the case might be, and then once everybody's all tucked away, your evening is either spent catching up on what you didn't get done during the day, or if you're like me, you tend to watch a little bit of Netflix and veg out before bed, and then it starts again the next day, right? And so that makes for a very, very busy lifestyle. I even have an app that reminds me to pray throughout the day because I'm so busy. And while it's a good tool and I encourage you to use it, it just really reflects how busy we are as a culture. You look at your calendar, you've got events every single day of the week. And it just goes on and on and on. We are a truly busy culture, and we tend to rely on ourselves to get things done in our life. But I think even more concerning than just kind of this busyness, this can-do attitude to accomplish things, is the fact that that translates itself into our spiritual life as well. And that's where the, the real problem is. See, even in our spiritual lives, um, we don't easily trust God. We get busy in all these things that we're supposed to do. If, you, if you're like me, I find it way too easy to work for God's love and forgiveness in my life. It just kind of naturally goes that way. That's my natural tendency. And so for many of us, reading the Bible and praying ends up becoming things that we are having our to-do list to check off. Um, and so we seek to follow all these rules with the goal of, of making God happy with us, right? Especially if we think that someone else is paying attention to what we're doing. But, you know, of course, please know that reading the Bible, praying um, to God, those sort of things, these spiritual disciplines, they are good things we should cultivate in our life. Um, but my warning is that we end up doing these things in order to feel safe in our faith sometimes. And so we have to make sure that our heart is in check as we're seeking to do these things. We have a self-sustaining mindset even in our spiritual lives. We think, if I can just do these things, then maybe God will love me more. Or if I could just do these things, then maybe everyone else will know that I have it all together and that I'm okay. Trusting God to make us better Christians, who has time to do that? So if you will, flip to Hebrews chapter 3 and 4. If you have a Bible or an app, we're actually going to do more than what's in the bulletin. There wasn't enough room for, for the entire scripture on the bulletin there. And so as you are turning there, I just want to give you a little bit of background info, what's going on in Hebrew. It's been a couple of weeks since we were together, so I want to just kind of remind us what's going on during this time um, that the writer of Hebrews is writing this, um, this letter while you guys flip to chapter 3. So remember, Hebrews is written to a group of Christians that are experiencing some sort of persecution. They have been um, persecuted or they're going through it currently. And so the writer of Hebrews, he's, uh, he's writing to them to encourage them to endure it in their faith to maintain their faith in the face of all this persecution. And um, we can see that and understand in looking at the different things in this um, book that the Hebrews are starting to look for their faith and their trust in things other than God. Um, we see that in chapter 1, um, Spencer preached a couple of weeks ago, about angels. So for some of them, they were beginning to put their faith in these angelic beings rather than Jesus. And so our author, he appropriately places these angels beneath Christ. Um, chapter 3, we didn't get to meet last week together, but um, for some of them, they were beginning to put their hope in Moses as well, in the Mosaic Law. You see, Moses is kind of like the superhero for, for the Israelites in the Old Testament, right? If you have trading cards of all the Israelites, you want the Moses card, right? He is, he's the guy to have. Um, but, you know, in all reality, they were looking, looking back to their old faith, looking back to Moses as well. And so again, um, the writer of Hebrews places Moses appropriately beneath Jesus Christ. And so he just continues throughout the entire book to remind them of the gospel, remind them that Jesus is better than anything else that they could put their faith and trust in, um, even in the face of persecution and adversity. But, you know, again, many of these Hebrews, they were starting to look towards other things other than Jesus in the face of all of this. And so the author in this passage, he talks about rest, and he uses the Israelites in the wilderness as an example of what not to do. 
So uh, from Hebrews 3, 7 through 4, 13, we read about God's rest for his people. And we encounter this word rest many times, 12 times in fact, in all of its forms. So obviously it's something really important to pay attention to. So we have to ask ourselves, what is this idea of rest that the author of Hebrews keeps referring to that we are supposed to strive for? If you're taking notes, I think there are two types of rest that we see in this passage. First, there is the eternal rest of heaven that is promised to all of God's believers, all of his children. And then second, there is this spiritual mindset of rest that we need to have each and every day. So two types of rest, eternal rest that we have hope for, and then our day-to-day spiritual mindset of rest. So if any of you guys were hoping this was uh, going to be a sermon about the Sabbath rest and you could take an na- uh, afternoon nap on this nice ra- rainy day, you're going to have to save that for another sermon. So we're talking about a different type of rest today. So what I want us to do is kind of go through this passage. And the author of Hebrews, he's tracing this idea of rest throughout Scripture. So we're going to kind of do the same thing. We're jumping around in chapter 3 and chapter 4 of Hebrews. So I'll just try to let you know where I am as we're going along. Um, but I think that's important because it really helps us to highlight that these Hebrews were not putting their faith in God. They're putting it in something else, something in the past. Um, and then, two, that will really help us to understand what did the author originally intend for his audience, and then how do we appropriately apply that to our lives as well. So first and most obvious, we see this idea of rest in Scripture come about at the end of the creation account. So we see we're in chapter 4, verse 3 right now. And starting partway through, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Oh, wait, I think I'm in the wrong place. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all of his works. And so we see this idea of rest. It comes to us in the very beginning. So at the end of the creation account, God also creates rest that he intends for his people to enter. Um, And so he offers it to us, his creation, at the very beginning. That's where we first see this idea of rest. Then second in this passage, the author, he references Psalm 95, and he uses that to describe the Israelites who did not enter the promised land that God had um, offered them, had promised them, this place of rest. This was following all of the great miracles that God had done for them in Egypt as they come out of Egypt, parting the Red Sea so they could cross and get out safely, and everything that he provided for them on their way to the promised land. And so they get there, and God tells them to go in to take the land. He's already given it for them. He's already gone ahead before them and done everything that needs to be done. All they had to do was trust him. But unfortunately, they don't. Even though God had promised to give it to them, the Israelites did not trust God. And because of their lack of trust in him, lack of belief, they do not enter his rest. So we see this in chapter 3, verses 8 through 11, if you look with me. It says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. On the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their hearts. They have not known my, na- my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. You see, it was, their unbelief was their sin. Their unbelief led to their disobedience of God's command for them, and as their punishment, they did not enter his rest, this promised land. The third place that we see rest in this passage, the author mentions it in verse 8, that although Joshua did later successfully lead the Israelites into the promised land, that land was not the rest that God had in mind for his people. And we know this because many, many years later, King David writes that God's rest is still available. You see that in verse 7. So if this rest is still available after they've been in the promised land for hundreds of years, then clearly this land, this earthly rest, was not what God had in mind for them. 
not what he had promised for his people from the foundation of the world. It was a type of rest representing God's eternal rest. And then if we, finally, if we go on, we see in verse 9 that this rest is still available for us. David says it's still available for us. And so we have to ask ourselves, what does this mean? What is this rest that God has in mind for his people from the beginning of the world? Well, you see, the rest that's found in the Garden of Eden, the rest that is found in the Promised Land, the rest that is found on Sabbath rests, all of these are called typologies, meaning that they are a type of rest. They are symbolic of the eternal rest that we have in God. So they just represent that. And this is why the author makes it so urgent for us um, in 3.12 for the Hebrews to maintain their faith. In 3.12 it says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. And then also in 4, um, verse 1, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. See, this is, it's really important for us to enter this rest because it's not just a place of rest in this world. It is our eternal rest that is in God. For a lot of the Hebrews, they were probably believing in Jesus intellectually. Right, at some sort of a level, but in their hearts, they did not have faith in Jesus. And we know this because they were turning their faith and their hope into other things other than Jesus. This lack of belief is probably why they started to turn to these other sort of things when life started to get difficult in their persecution. And I think, really, this is true for a lot of us as well. See, in our, in our religious South, where a lot of us are, come from, it's where we live at this point, um, there's a lot of churchgoers who say that they know who Jesus is because they've been in church their entire life. But for some of them, they don't really know Jesus at a personal level, and they don't have faith in him. You see, there are Christians, they believe, because they have attended church their entire life, or maybe their parents or grandparents were Christians, or maybe they just appear to be Christian by going to church each week and trying to follow all the rules and do all the right things. But sadly, they are only Christian in appearance and not in substance. And just like God says in 3.10, they have always gone astray in their heart and they have not known God's ways, not known his ways. I think that a lot of us in this room, we could probably think of someone that fits the description or maybe some of us fit this description where we are a Christian in appearance but not in substance in our faith. Or if you're like me, you know, again, a lot of us, we find it really easy to work for God's love and forgiveness in our lives. We look at all of his commands for us as his children, as we are ambassadors for Christ. We look at all of his expectations for us as husbands and fathers, as wives, mothers, as students, or as children, or whatever the case might be. We look at all these sort of things, and we end up relying on ourselves to get things done for these obligations. It comes down to you to read your Bible each day, or to pray each day or to follow all these other spiritual disciplines or everything that God commands of you. And we do all of this with the hope of making God happy with us or of appearing like we have it all together. We know what it takes to look like a Christian, but our faith is often lacking. It's not enough just to attend church and to be a good person or a good Christian. You see, the truth is, if you're paying attention, the truth is that you are not able to do all of these things. It's impossible for you in your own strength. See, our rest is in Jesus Christ, and that's what the author of Hebrews is telling us. We must always go back to the gospel, always back to that as our foundation. And so we look at Jesus, who lived the perfect life that you and I could not live, and he died, took the punishment of sins that you and I could not pay for ourselves. And because of those things that he has done, we are able to find our rest in him in this life. You see, 
we must always take our doubts and go back to Jesus Christ on the cross because he is our better rest. He's a better place to put our rest in, in this life, in order to make it into God's eternal rest. That is the only way. And I think this is the second type of rest that we see in this passage, this idea of putting our faith in the saving grace of Jesus Christ in order for us to enter God's eternal rest that he has promised us. He's our only hope, and he is our sure foundation. You see, our Christian life, it is just a daily fight to persevere in our faith and to obey Christ's commands. Our daily lives should be reflective of someone who has been transformed by God. If we look throughout this passage, we see um, this idea of rest consistently signifies trust in God and his promises. That's why the Israelites did not enter God's promised land, this rest for them, because they did not put their trust in, they did not put their rest in God and his promise to give them their salvation. And again, that's why in 3.12 the author pleads with us so intently to make sure that we do not have an unbelieving heart because a lack of a belief will not give us this rest that God has promised for us. And I think the fact is there are two types of people in this room and two types of people in this world. There are those that do believe in what Jesus has done for them, and there are those that do not believe. And so we have to ask ourselves, which category do we find ourselves in? Where do we find our rest? Does our rest come from being a good Christian and doing the right thing? Does it come from being a good husband or father or wife or mother um, to our kids? Does it come in being a good employee or boss or in success and looking like we have it all together? Or do we find our rest in the finished work of Christ on this cross? I do want to clarify, though, that you can be a Christian and still have seasons of doubt, right? That's possible. I know for me, there are countless times in my life where I look at all my circumstances in life and I tend to lack faith in God um, and what he will do for me, right? So you can have those seasons of doubt. But if you are truly a Christian and truly saved, um, then we can put our faith in Christ, right? That's where we find our, our rest in this life. And we can be certain that we will have our salvation if we continually throughout our life place our trust in Christ. And so that's why we have to daily remind ourselves of the gospel. So whether you believe in Jesus or don't believe in Jesus, you still need the gospel every single day. If you've been a believer for two days or 20 years or 80 years, you need the gospel every single day. In 3.13, if you look with me, the writer tells us to exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. And so the truth is, friends, we do need each other because we need brothers and sisters who will continually remind us each and every day to place our rest and our trust back in Jesus Christ in order to make it throughout this life and to point us back to a Savior who is where we can find our rest in Him and Him alone. So we have to ask ourselves, what does this mean for us? What do we do with this kind of heavy passage, this idea of needing to find our rest? My favorite verse in this entire passage is found in chapter 4, verse 11. And it says that we are to strive to enter that rest so that no, no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Now, I just love this idea of striving for rest because it sounds counterintuitive. It sounds like these two words are in contradiction to each other, striving and resting. But in reality, it's a beautiful picture of what we are called to do in, this, in our Christian life. Um, we are called to live lives that are reflective of somebody that has their faith in Jesus. And in order to maintain that faith, each and every day we have to struggle and we have to fight vigorously to maintain that faith. Some days it's, a lot, it's really easy to do that, and some days it gets pretty messy. But we still have to fight each and every day to put our faith in Christ. And if we are saved, then I think our entire lives 
will be reflective of someone who has trusted Jesus Christ. So how do we actually do this? Practically, what does this mean for us? How do we put our, our trust in Christ each day? How do we find rest in him? Well, I think that we do that by going to God's word. So each and every day we look at God's word and we trust in his promises, and then we also obey his commands. And in, so in, as well in, in doing that, we also need to encourage one another to do the same, right? That's what this passage is telling us. It's not just enough to do it for ourselves, but we're here with each other. We're striving together. We should encourage one another to do the same. You see, I think in our southern religious culture that it doesn't really take or cost a whole lot for us to be a Christian, at least not yet anyway. It's really easy to look like a Christian is what I mean. I think that's why there's so many people um, in the area in which we live that just assume that you can be a Christian by going to church, right? Because you go to church each week, you say a prayer, you get your get out of hell free card, and then your life doesn't really look all that different than what it did before for a lot of people. And it's sad. But a faithless, disobedient life will not go unnoticed by God. That's also uh, pointed out to us in this passage. Chapter 4, verses 12 through 13 tell us, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. See, this passage lets us know that God expects a faithful obedience and that his word will expose our hearts for the truth, for our true intention and our true actions. God knows if we are obeying his commands out of resting in the work of Christ, but he also knows if we're doing it out of our own rest in ourselves, out of our own work. And that's why it's crucial for us to find our foundation in the gospel. There are many churches around the world with people that believe that they are a Christian and they're doing all these good things. But we see in Matthew 7, 21 through 23, that there are a lot of people that are going to go to heaven and they're not going to be allowed in. And they're going to say, you know, Jesus, I did all these things for you. I prophesied in your name. I healed people in your name. I helped the poor in your name. And Jesus will say, depart from me. I never knew you. It's because they... Um, Unfortunately, I assume that they are a Christian, but they don't put their faith in Jesus Christ to save them. They put their faith in their works. I think there, there was a time in our history uh, of the world and, the, and of the faith in which you would not automatically be assumed to be a Christian if you said a prayer. Um, instead, the preacher or other people in your life, they would look at your life after that fact and see if it began to be reflective of somebody that had been changed and had true faith in Christ. The, to quote Charles Spurgeon, he said in a sermon one time way back in 1893, he says, I say again that detailed obedience is the surest evidence that the Lord has forgiven your sin. For instance, he quotes, he who believes and is baptized shall be saved. Do not omit any part of that precept. And if Christ bids you to come to his table and thus remember him, do not live in neglect of that command. At the same time, remember to live soberly, righteously, honestly, godly in this present evil age. For if you do not, if there is not a detailed obedience, there may be a fear that after all, the Lord has never said to you, your sins are forgiven you. And I think that's what the author of Hebrews is getting at for us. It's not enough to just look like we have faith, but we actually have to have faith. And our life needs to look like someone that's living in obedience to God's scripture. You see, if we are truly saved, then I think that we will obey God's commands. And we will never end up losing faith in Jesus Christ.
It was once explained to me that this idea of sanctification, the Christian life, it's one part the Holy Spirit's work in us and one part our obedience as well. And so I think that's why we should not divorce the gospel from our good works, right? Our foundation is the gospel. We go there first. We rest, are able to rest each day because of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And so we can rest in that fact. But it's because of the saving grace of Jesus that we then obey his commands. We have to strive each and every day to hold on to that faith throughout our entire lives. It is because we are saved that we obey. So then we ask ourselves, what is the very next step? What are we supposed to do? Well, each and every day you have to go back to the cross of Christ. And so that's what the communion table is for. That's why we take communion each and every single week, because we need to be reminded of this truth. We must be reminded of what Christ has done for us. And then also to remind ourselves that because of this finished work of Christ, we then will have eternal rest in heaven. One of my favorite verses right now is Colossians 4.2. It's something that Spencer has been talking to me a lot about and encouraged me to, to memorize it, but I'm going to read it to make sure I don't mess it up. But it says, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. And so each and every single day, we should apply this, this um, scripture to our life. You see, we pray each day, thankful for what Christ has done, that he has shown himself faithful. And because he has been faithful in the past, we know that he'll be faithful in the future. That's his character. He's faithful. And the same is true in this. Because Christ has been faithful to save us from our sins, we know that he will be faithful in the long run, in our eternal rest as well. So that's what we need every single day just to make it through this life. We pray each day when we remind ourselves of what the cross has done for us. We are thankful for what Jesus Christ has done. And then that gives us faith in each and every single day as we step forward and we try to obey his commands. So I hope that for you guys, as you begin to look this, this week, as you start to look at your heart, Sundays are, are meant to convict us of our sins and then hopefully lead to a holy repentance as well. And so I hope you'll take the time to really just ask yourself, where am I placing my, my trust? Where am I resting in? Is it in my actions and trying to be a good Christian and to, to follow all the right rules? Or am I placing my trust in Christ? And the truth is, you, you need to be reminded of this every day. You may walk out of here and be like, oh yeah, I totally have my faith in Jesus today. And tomorrow something might happen and it's going to really cause you to question things. Or you may feel like you kind of need to put everything on your own shoulders in order to be a good Christian, to be, for me to be a good father and a, a good husband. But the truth is, every day we have to go back to the gospel. We have to go back to Jesus Christ because he is our better rest. So if you will, let's pray and move into a time of communion. Heavenly Father, God, we are thankful for your word. We're thankful for the truth that is found in it, um, that it can convict our hearts, God. But more than all, we are um, thankful for what Jesus has done. Because the truth is, we do not have what it takes to live this life on our own. And we have nothing to offer you that would make us worthy of your forgiveness or your love. We have nothing to give to you. The truth is we need your son each and every day. We need your word to remind us of the truth every day that Jesus' work is finished. And if we place our trust in him and in that work, then it is finished for us as well. And we no longer have to strive for your forgiveness because we already have it. I also pray that as you remind us of this truth, God, that you'll help us to live in obedience of your word, not with a mindset of working for anything, not of looking good, God, but that you will help us to place our rest in Jesus and to continue to strive each and every day as long as it is today.
and that you'll help us to encourage one another to do the same. Thank you for your word and thank you for your work on the cross. Pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So as I mentioned before, we take communion each and every week because we need these reminders. And we need these reminders every single day of what God has done for us and what Jesus has done for us on the cross. And so this is representative of that work that Jesus has done. And this is why we can come together each week. We can celebrate what God has done because it's already finished. This is just to remind us each week. And so this bread, we take it and we split it because it represents the broken body of Jesus Christ that was broken on the cross for our sins. And then we take this juice and we see that it is poured out and it represents Christ's blood that was literally poured out for us on the cross. And we do these things each week in remembrance of what Christ has done to remind ourselves that we don't have to trust in ourselves for anything, for, for God's love and forgiveness. It is already finished. And we come to this table reminding ourselves of this fact. And so if you will, you can go ahead and stand. And there will be men in each corner around the room. And so I encourage you to come. You can come individually. You can come in, in groups as well. And, and I encourage you to remind each other that Jesus' work is finished. Whenever you get in your circle to pray, whoever is praying, remind everybody that Jesus' work is finished. You can come as you're ready. <clears throat>